If you enjoy My Comic Shop History, please consider joining the My Comic Shop History Patreon community. Rewards include bonus episodes, the My Comic Shop History After Show, and more. Your pledge gets you exclusive access to that content and also supports the creation of this show. Thank you to everyone who has already pledged. I truly appreciate it. And if you haven't pledged yet, don't be a flat squirrel. Welcome to Beyond My Comic Shop. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is part two of Buying Books with Ben, featuring Zap Comics co-owner Ben Lichtenstein. Ben, welcome back. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So last time we talked about your secret origin as a reader and a fan and then a buyer and seller of collections. Mm-hmm. And uh, when last we spoke, we finished with a bit about your experiences as a dealer at conventions. And this was still pre-Zap Comics, but Zap Comics would come not too far after. right? Correct. There was an, an intermediary step where you had a part-time store at an indoor flea market. That's right. Right? How did that come to be? Okay. Um, I was in college. I attended Rutgers uh, University from 1988 to 91. Um, I was selling comic books at that point in time, I was selling them in the Comics Buyer's Guide. I was running ads in Comics Buyer's Guide as well as doing comic book conventions. And uh, it was going fine. I wasn't making a ton of money, but I was making enough money that I don't think I... I still worked a little bit at my job at Haagen-Dazs. But um, I... In the back of my mind, you know, once I entered college, uh, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well... It would be really cool to have a comic book store as a business. I, in the back of my mind, I've always been torn between, uh, you know, pursuing like writing and art, um, and you know, the whole uh, owning and own my own business and commerce. So, one uh, the way the part-time uh, business came about was I w- I joined uh, a fraternity at Rutgers, which was very unlike me. I was totally out of character, but I did it, and it, it was well worth it. It was crazy. And one of the, the fraternity brothers was into comic books and other stuff like baseball cards. And he didn't have as much knowledge as I did about the old comic books. And he says, hey, you know, they're, they're building this new indoor flea market. It's a brand new thing. And they need vendors since, um, you know, we both like comics. Let's sell comics there. And this, this guy um, who approached me, he, you know, he, we, we got along fine. Uh, we weren't best friends, but but we got got along fine. And and he was a hard worker. He was a hustler too. He he always had a million jobs and was always buying and selling stuff. So I knew he was a hustler, and I trusted him, and I still do. I trust him. So I said, yeah, sure. I said that sounds like a good idea because I was doing okay with my comics buyers guide ads and shows, but it it was inconsistent. I figured, well, if we have something every week instead of having to get a part time job somewhere, we'll do that. So we did it. So it, it opened up and, um, you know, we signed a lease and had rent. And that was a really great uh, learning lesson, too, because that gave me practice on a small scale of about having a store. That's actually a really smart way to go about it. I mean, even if you didn't have the idea yet to have your own full store, but to at least, you know, have that experience under your belt, that makes a lot of sense. It really made a lot of sense. And that's not to, you know, uh, diverge too much here, but... I think a mistake that most people, not just comic books, but most uh, entrepreneurs make, they kind of dive into a business without first maybe doing it on maybe a part-time basis or working for someone else for a while and really learning the business first. And I think that actually is why most of them fail Um, because I know so many people, they say, well, I'm going to start XYZ business, doesn't matter. And it happens in comic books all the time. And yet they haven't really, I always advise everyone who wants to get into comic books, just do it for a couple of years first and know, get that experience and that pain and, um, and those lessons. Uh, do, do it part-time. Do shows, do eBay, sell them on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I think it's really a, a, a major mistake just to open a comic store without years of experience because you're going to make so many mistakes and then they're more expensive mistakes. I'm sure it's different for each person in each case, but I mean, I wonder generally, is it a naivete or a laziness or maybe fear? Like they're worried if they <laughs> they know too much, they might not want to do it. 
And am I, am I convinced them otherwise? You know what's interesting? I think all three of the things she said are all apply. And I think a big part of people that go into business, um, and I, I could even apply, apply this to myself in some way, it's a way to stave off growing up. It's a, a way to stave off that like stress and you know kind of bigger responsibility of actually having a full-time job and real responsibility. And it's something... It's just like people that are like working on a book. Like I, I know this guy, he's a nice guy, but he, he's been working on a book, quote unquote, for like 15 years now. And it's a way to say you're working on something when you're really not and you're just like putting off making a hard decision, which is to get a job or really just admit the book's not going to work. So I actually really, I agree with you on all three of those points. So what were some of the lessons that you took away from the uh, the part-time store? Well... We learn really fast um, not to focus entirely on price because what had, what had happened was, which was a great lesson. I, I learned a lot there. That was great. At the same time that we, we, we signed a lease to have a comic book store there. And then we open up and we see there's another comic book store literally across the aisle from us. And we got really angry at the landlord and said, listen, this is going to hurt us. We're just going to hurt each other. And then those guys... Um, at first we were really angry and we're like, okay, well, they're, they're the enemy and we're at war with them. And then they would try to steal our customers and then they would run over to our store and buy something from us just to get it for our customer, uh, for their customers. So they wouldn't come to us. And it was one of those annoying cutthroat situations. I learned really fast. This is dumb. This is just hurting both of us. So I, I instead... After the first few months where it was a little bit heated between us, I just made friends with them. I forget what I I don't remember the word to you, but I said, listen, let's not, I'm not going to do it to you. You don't do it to me. We're both into comics. Let's just do our own thing, I said. And that's that's exactly how I've approached almost everything I've done since then. And I've had, I had a bad situation just to jump ahead. In like 2002 or 2003, I had two comic stores open, one right in Wayne. He was a new guy, very naive, not a businessman. Um, He didn't do it with any malice, but he opened in the same town as me. And I kind of said to him, I said, why would you do that? I'm not going away, you know, and it's only going to hurt both of us. This is not good. And then I had a former customer, a real shady guy. He was always, when I wasn't there, he would try to convince the workers to sell him variants at a real, real shifty guy. He opened up a mile and a half away from me, and I was stressed out from that. Major stressed out. That was that was one of those times I wasn't sleeping well for like a year, because the and and also business was bad. Business. This was a downtime, but I learned I'm not going to fight on price. The guy, the guy that was shady, who you know wound up, uh, he screwed all his partners, owes everyone money. He was giving people like thirty to forty percent off just to win them over from me. And I said, I know this guy's going to go out of business. It's it's simple arithmetic. So, but I learned from that, you know, that part-time thing, not to get into like cutting throats. You, you only cut your own throat. You, you, you compete on, you know, service and price and selection. And if they win, then, then they win. But it, it's like a race to the bottom. Well, well, that guy gave you 30 off, I'll give you 35. Those kind of buyers are never loyal anyway. Those are the worst customers. The, the, the guys that'll jump ship for like that extra 5%, they're the worst so don't even engage with them. Okay, bye, you know. And as my saying goes, go away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a call back to part one. Yeah. <laughs> with the, I'm just curious what the responses were from those people. So at the flea market, for example, when you went over and you, you know, you made peace. I mean, did they, were they receptive? Did they honor, you know, what you agreed upon? Yeah, pretty much. They were actually, it turned out that, um, they weren't bad guys at all. They were kind of like us. They were just regular, normal dudes. They just thought it'd be cool to have a comic book uh, stand. Um, I I bump into two of them quite often at Comic Cons. Even now, they're not in the business, but you know, and and they stop and chat, and it's we just talk about the old days, and it's very friendly. So we just kind of agreed just to coexist, and then they left fairly soon. Like like we lasted two years, and then I graduated college, and that was it. Um, was it a, like a booth? Yeah. What was it called? It was called, now, now you're ready, this is very creative, Ben and Mike's Comics. Well, it's to the point. Gets, gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. It was I, I, obviously not, not, not our, my, my finest hour in creativity. But, um, and their booth was, uh, they actually had a name. Oh, I don't remember it now. Like, I don't know. 
like the third dimension. Right? So, you know, like, you know, comic-esque. Comic-esque, right. Um, but I still run, run into two of those guys, and, you know, we talk about it, and it was fine. But I learned immediately is to, if someone is your enemy, just to not engage, just do your best just to, like, totally d- disengage. Don't even waste any effort on it. And the guys that are kind of your rivals or, or, or a competitor, just um, be, be kind of neutral or, or friendly. Right. You know, be, because you're not going to gain anything by going to war. Because when those, you know, to jump back ahead to like 2003, when those two, two, two stores opened up, I was stressed out, man. I was, it was bad. That was, that was one of those time periods I talk about, which, you know, I, I look back on and, and, and that gets me out of bed in the morning. Because the one guy was, was, was actively after me, like trying just to steal all my customers. And the other guy was just a, a naive, kind of just didn't, didn't know any better and, and, and was hurting himself. And he, he wound up closing up and with like $100,000 in debt. And, and he, so he hurt himself as well. Right. Well, it's a tough thing because even if, even if you recognize the failings of those owners and those stores and you figure, well, they're not going to be around that long still for however long that they're there, I mean, they can do damage. A lot of damage. And and I, I knew they would both not last. One wouldn't last because he was selling it. He had a bad location. And he was selling everything. at Basically, he was losing money with every sale. I knew that. So he would run out of money. The other guy I knew wouldn't last just because even though he was not a bad guy, he had didn't have a business sense and he didn't have a good location and he was just doing everything wrong. Like I, I, I can walk into a store and talk to a guy for about a half an hour and look around the store and I know they're doing a lot wrong. They're going to fail. Right. Probably. The naive guy, when you went over and said, hey, like, <laughs> why would you open up here? What was his response? He said um, he didn't. He says, you're doing well. I figured it's a good place for comics. <laughs> he, I'm sure it, I, I, I have a feeling in his mind that was what was on his mind because I, I had been a, around for like, you know, 10 or 11 years by then. He figures, well, Zap's making money. There's a good area. You know, he kind of said, oh, you know, yeah, I, I, I figured Wayne's a big town. Like he said some, I don't remember, it was like a throwaway comment. Like he, he, he wasn't confrontational, actually. He was he was just like, oh, yeah, I just kind of figured there was room for everyone or something like that. And I'm like, ah, you know, you know, this is bad, I said, because I'm, I'm not going away. You know, th- 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 this is my livelihood, and now it's only going to hurt both of us, man. I mean, on this note of of confrontation and I know you said you know going back to your strategy for you know buying and selling books and you know if something's not working right like you you know you won't engage Mm -hmm. but I guess how do you you know if you're in the middle of a negotiation and it's not going the right way for whatever reason and someone's just rubbing you the wrong way how do you how do you disengage from something like that what is your strategy well what I usually do is uh, here, I'll give I'll give you an example. Last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I got a phone call from from a, a gentleman in Staten Island, and um, he was he was a perfectly I'm not going to say anything negative about him. He's perfectly polite, but he came off on the phone as I'm going to say kind of kind of rough around the edges, and um, to the point where I probably what what wasn't going to go down for the collection. But, you know, he, he called me a couple more times. He gave me a little more information. And, and he had a couple key issues I wanted. Uh, but I just had a good feeling he was going to be hard to deal with. Um, and I was right. Um, I got to his house, and we go down his basement. Um, and, you know, we start going through each book. And he was one of those guys. There's a lot of these guys who now flip books on Instagram and Facebook. And they are often... They often buy from me, and then they flip the book to someone else. And they're they're usually very hard to to buy from because they're often their grading is totally off. So 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 right off the bat, they think it's a nine two, and you know it's an eight zero, and already you're off. And secondly, they're always on the um, they're always trying to get the top price possible, maximum price. They they have to feel that 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 they won. Okay. So I go down with this guy. And our agreement was I would buy his bulk, his cheap stuff. But I said, I'm not coming to Staten Island just for that. It's just only a few hundred dollars. I said, you have to have a better. It's not worth a trip for me, I said. I have to buy better stuff. So my time, I was very upfront with him. So my time is, you know, well spent. He goes, no problem. I have at Hulk 181. I have this and that. We'll make a deal on those two. I said, okay. He said, just so you know, I'm not going to buy the bulk unless we are able to make a deal on some better stuff as well. Not all of it, but something. And he agreed to that. 
and I realized as we're going through the books that it was just it was going to be like a war. Every book it was going to be like in his mind he he has to win the, this bargaining session. So I almost just left, but then I said to myself, I really want that Hulk one eighty one, <laughs> and I said I I have to, I, I got to make this work. So what I did, I let him win on a few, meaning I made very marginal money, and then there was a few he let me win a little bit. And then once we agreed on a few, it was just like, on a, you know, an American Pickers, they break the ice, you know what I mean? They, sure. It was that. And this is stuff I don't enjoy, actually. This is when I have to put on my, like, um, what's the word I'm saying? My, like, ch- chess, I, like I'm playing chess, which I don't enjoy this, actually, having to figure out how to play this guy so I can walk away with my Hulk 181. But I, but I had it, and I did it. And I, I know how to do it because certain people have to feel that they won. And as long as you could angle... Let them win some, and you get what you want. Everyone can somewhat. And, and he was very. And, and and at the end, we were actually. It, it usually works out that once you break the ice, they let down their guard. You know, he had he was very guarded. It actually worked out fine, and we and he helped me load him up, and he was like, "Thanks for coming." And, and he was he was he was totally fine. It was fine, but like you know, the point is, sometimes when it's someone that's just going to be Im- impossible, um, I just say, "Look, you know." I think we're far apart. That, that's my phrase. I think we're really far apart here. Why don't you get some other offers? And I'll actually give them names of other buyers because let them handle it. Right. right? And then um, sometimes when there's a, a customer in the store that's it's a real pain, it's just going to has to feel that he has to always get a deal off me. I just say, I kind of do the same thing. I send him to other stores. I say, listen, I don't think it's going to work. You're... I, I can't sell them for those prices. I think you want stuff wholesale. Um, here's a list of stores. Go to them. And that usually does a trick because I'm kind of in a polite way saying get out of the store. Right. I mean, do they do they recognize that? And are they put off by that ever? Probably. I mean, some of them, some, some people are just very not self-aware, you know, and they have an ego. And they're also just focused on like, I'm going to win, you know, in this negotiation. But some of them ab- absolutely see it immediately. I go, wow, this guy's just throwing me. He, he's telling me to. He he doesn't even want my money. He he wants me to leave, in in a polite way, in the right way. I say, listen, I think it's best if you shop with, you know, uh, if you could go to that store in Fairlawn, and because I know that that guy's not going to take any of this crap, and he he's going to throw him out of the store too. So some of them recognize it. Um, it's rare I actually have a confrontation like a heated one because I really. I'm really very careful, as you know already, you know, knowing me now, I'm very careful about just like having a very, you know, professional, calm, friendly, you know, presentation right. here. And I don't like arguing, but I, I've had a couple, you know, I've had like, I've had a few over the years where they were ridiculous. They were obnoxious. They, they were treating my employees poorly. Mm. That I, I, I don't stand for one bit. You, you got to get out of here. It's not going to work. Shop somewhere else. On the note of, of negotiating with these uh, sellers, you know, I think this is something we'll, we'll kind of keep touching on over the course of these episodes, but one thing that I was curious about, generally speaking, do you find that people are, are aware, well, not aware, but are they, do they really recognize that you are a store, you're not just a collector buying something for your collection, so that you, know, you need to make a profit on this? So if, if they have a sense of, oh, it's worth this much, do they recognize that you're not going to pay what it's worth because... Presumably, you're going to be selling it for what it's worth, so you need to pay less for it. Otherwise, what's the point? Like, are they aware of right. that? I mean, how often do you have to educate people on how you're... Yeah. <laughs> well... I mean, I would imagine. Something we run into a lot, which I'm sure almost every dealer and store owner does who buys comics, people will want to, want to feel that they did their research online, as well everyone should. You're buying a house, a car, you know, you should do your research, Right. But they always look at these websites. Like there's one called comicpriceguy.com. There's one called uh, Comic Book Realm or something. There's probably like a dozen of them that are price guides. And they're based on nothing. Uh, they don't have it broken down by grade. Um, it, the, the prices are not real market prices. And it gets frustrating. Or And oh, thirdly, they look on eBay listings, not the sold listings. I've, I'm so sick of saying... Click on sold listings and then look at the ones in green that have sold on eBay. That's a much better idea of the market. That's what someone really paid. And I'll tell you, I'm exhausted from saying it. I've said it like 10,000 times. Because people will say, oh, 
you offered me $150. This is $1,000. I go, no, no. And then I explained to him, I go, well, it's on, it's on consignment on mycomicshop.com for $1,000 because someone just threw a price out there. No one is going to ever pay that. We'll both be long gone for him. It's worth, and then I show them sold listings, sold for two and a quarter. I'll sell it for 250 I'll give you X amount. Some people also think that comic books are like a stock or a bond that's traded on like some exchange. And it's, well, it's worth $11. Give me 10 or something. You know, it's really, and I say, well, no, you got to realize I have 10 of these already. And I get these all the time. And I have to cover my overhead and blah, blah, blah. So I, I can pay you five. And this is also a common issue. It get, you can see actually I'm starting to get like a, a little rolled up here. It, it gets frustrating. Usually though, I'm, I'm able to educate them pretty quickly. And I think that's also, that's something I try to do at least. I try and come across as straightforward as possible. I look them in the eye, I explain this is why I'm doing this, this is why I'm doing that. And I would say probably 90% of people come around like, and, and I also really say, listen, get some other offers. And because sometimes they'll want such a high price. I'm like, listen, here, here, here's what I advise. I think we're really far apart. Maybe get some other offers. Do a little research. And maybe we'll, you know, and, and very often that they come back, you know, you were right because I looked at that 9.8 price and mine's a fine. And then, see, that's the other problem is, too. They'll look at the 9.8 price. That's 500 bucks. Their copy is like a, a ratty copy that's worth 80 bucks. And you have to explain that. It gets a little exhausting, but I'm used to it. It's part of the business, and I just calmly do it. Most people are actually reasonable and kind of, you know, take my, you know, take my words for what they are. And then sometimes you just get people that are just, like I said, ready for a fight. They're always right. looking for an angle, and it's usually because they're always angling. Right. Yeah, I would imagine in a case where someone's just genuinely ignorant, like this isn't something that they're they've dealt with and they're aware of. Absolutely. Maybe it's easier to be patient with them versus someone who's looking to to score. That's exactly it. Like. When, when it's someone who, who legitimately is never, like let's say they inherited their comics or let's say they were, I don't know, they, like, like sometimes I get landlords will sell me stuff like the, the tenant left their stuff behind. Usually it's not good, but anyway, they're just, that's a perfect, I, I understand their side of the table because let's say when I go to buy a car, like I'm, I, I'm, I don't like to haggle. I kind of know what I want to pay. I do my research. I kind of know where I want to be. But I understand when I'm going to buy something that I have no knowledge of, there's a certain kind of nervousness and apprehension. You, you don't want to get taken advantage of, and it's all new to you. I'm very understanding of that because I'm, I'm a human being, and i got to buy stuff that I don't know about. So usually I'm patient with them. I understand it. And it usually works out okay. Yeah, that was something else that I wanted to get into with you as far as you know the, the different types of people that you're dealing with when you go to buy these collections. So... If you so in a case like that, or a relative, or someone who's who's not knowledgeable about this, if if they call you and you go over, and they're like, "I'll, I'll take twenty bucks. I don't care. Like I just want to get rid of it." But you know okay. it's worth far more. How do you handle that? Okay, that's that's a very common. It's not a common thing. It doesn't happen much. But but that's that's a um, a uh, among comic buyers that that's a big dilemma because um here's the thing. If you have any kind of, of ethics, if someone has a $100,000 comic collection and they say, listen, I'm throwing these away, whatever you give me, I'll take it. $50, I'll take it. You can't, you can't do that. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. You can do it. You're not legally obliged to pay them anything besides the $50. You can walk away. They, they set the price. I can't do that because, well, well there's a few reasons. One is... If it's, if it's a drastic amount, like say they were going to give me for like 5%, I can't do it. First of all, just bad karma. I just feel icky about it. Secondly, um, I'm kind of taking advantage of their lack of knowledge. And third, it's going to give me a lot of goodwill, which is, which is also why I get a lot of collections because I built up this reserve of goodwill where I say, hey, listen, you have this box of comics. I told you I can buy these books for, for, for $30 a long box because they're 90 stuff. Um, but you, you're, you're basically at my mercy. You're putting yourself at my mercy. You're saying, Ben, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trusting you to give me a fair offer. I know you have to make a profit. Tell me if there's anything good in here. And then I'll pull out the New Minus 98, and I'll, I'll show them. And it builds up a lot of goodwill. But, and I'm going to still make a very fair profit. I'm going to pay them 100 and a quarter. I'll get 200 for it, too, probably 2 and a quarter. 
You're not le- legally obliged to, to do that. I know plenty of dealers, they get off on that. They get off on that score, on just totally raping. Now, I'm not going to say also, let's say I buy a huge collection and I buy it, the deal's done, I bring it back, and there was a few things mixed in. If it, unless it's something really drastic, I'm not going to call the person anyway because there's two, two things that can happen. One is they get, think, they, they get suspicious, actually. Well, wait a minute. Was he trying to rip me off and now he felt guilty and he's giving me more money? That's weird. I'm not doing that. And number two, there's usually something in collections that I missed on the negative side. Like there's a missing page or something, and it's kind of a wash. I let it go. But what I've done many, many times, especially if someone just comes in here and says, listen, I don't know anything about comic books. You're the expert. You're in this business. I'm putting, I'm in your hands here. I want you to be fair with me. In that case, I'm going to tell them what they have. I, I still have to make a profit. I'm going to pay them a fair price. But it's happened many, many times where like someone, it just happened last year, they had a Tales of Suspense 39. It was mixed in with a bunch of just mediocre books. And I could have very easily just kept that in the pile and gotten it for probably $10. But instead, I said, hey, this is a great one. And, and we, they actually took a picture of it and I, they, they send me Christmas cards now and stuff, which is unnecessary, by the way. I don't need Christmas cards. I, I get a lot of them already. But... I, I paid them, I think, uh, eleven or twelve hundred. It wasn't high grade. I gave them twelve hundred bucks, and they were excited. I think it was the kid's father had died. That that also play, plays into my thinking too. I think I said that in the last podcast. If someone's like has like a a legitimate bad story, and they really need the money, I'm always going to be a little more generous. But so you're not a, a obliged to do that though. And let, let's say I'm at a garage sale, and a guy is everything priced at a quarter, and there's a big book in there. I don't really have to give them any more. And if he's like a guy who's, it, it depends on if they're, this is what I do. If, if they're telling me, listen, Ben, I, I'm in your hands here. I'm going to trust you as the expert to give me a fair price. I really take, take that seriously. And, and I still make a profit, though. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pay him full price. But um, I know a lot of guys at that garage sale, they would just pay the quarter. And honestly, if I was at a garage sale and it's like a guy who looks like he, he he's in an antiques dealer and he kind of knows his stuff, but he just missed on something and he has it stickered, I'm just going to buy it and I'm and forget it. Because that guy ready has set up a situation where he has his, his knife out in the situation. Like <laughs> it, it, it's adversarial, whereas he's not saying, hey, look, Ben, you're, you're the expert. Can you just tell me what's fair on these? I'll take your fair price. Right. Um, and you know, but I, this is something that comes up all the time with, with dealers. Now, dealers have a make a bit. A lot of dealers have a business of just going around to comic shows and finding the mistakes. And and I miss stuff. There sometimes I just screw up. I price stuff too low, and I miss. It, it's called finding the misses. And if someone's a dealer, it's kind of you know, all's fair in love and war. If someone's a dealer and and he, he just misgrades something or is not on top of the market, well, shame on him, you know. But if someone is more is not a dealer and they're kind of putting you putting their faith in you, you got to give them a fair price. I think that's reasonable. Do people, how often, if at all, do people come to you just for an appraisal? Uh, not too often. Usually when they say a, an appraisal, they actually want to sell it, but they're just, they're just trying to be a little coy and don't want to like make a mistake. So they don't want to tell me they want to sell it because they don't want to commit to anything. Um, I do insurance appraisals. You know, we charge a fee and I'll do a written official appraisal. I do maybe one of those a year. And, you know, because someone needs it for a divorce or insurance, I do those. Um, I'm really not in the habit of doing free appraisals just for, for, for random people, especially the ones that occasionally want me just to grade and price their books for them so they could in turn sell them themselves on eBay. I'm like, why would I do that? My, my time is valuable. Why would I help you sell them? Right. Uh, I need to get paid for my time, right? I, I, I get that maybe once a year where someone wants me to do that work so they could say, listen, I want to sell these on eBay, but I don't know how to grade comics, so I want you to do it for me. I go, well, yeah, well, my time's really valuable. I, I'll charge you $100 an hour, and I'll do that. And they go, they go, what? And, and it's some, I, I actually had a couple of people do it, actually. And I said, okay, because I'm getting paid for my time. I'll, I'll do that. But people don't do too many appraisals. Uh, usually they, they, they want to sell, and, and you wind up buying it. Going back to the issues of grading and uh, price guide values, you know, you mentioned a few sources that you, you don't subscribe to. Uh, what are resources that you, you will follow? Well, one thing that I is very valuable, which a lot of people use, and some, some are 
some of these buyers and sellers are not using it correctly, but there there's a website called GP Analysis. And everyone in the business just says GPA. What what's the GPA on that? Everyone says GPA, GPA. And what it is, they they take sales data. Not everyone submits their sales data. Most of the bigger websites don't even give them their data. But it, they take data off eBay, and a couple others, maybe Comic Linker, Comic Connect. I'm not sure. So they they show trends and they show real sold prices on CGC graded comics, or CBCS, um, certified comics. So that's that's important on better books, like more valuable books. On less valuable books, say under $100, we look at eBay a lot. And on a lot of books, I'll just kind of figure it out between eBay, what I see people um, on, um, you know, what what people are going for. Because sometimes there's books that eBay's not catching up to it or vice versa, or, or, or there's not data on eBay. Like there's a certain book, it's, there's, no, there's no data on it, and I just have to figure it out. But um, on bigger books, you absolutely have to use GPA. But then it, then it starts getting fine-tuned. It, it gets really granular. Like, let's say I, I have a hero for hire one nine two. Okay, CDC nine two. Last one went for eighteen hundred. But now, they don't tell. Did that one have creamed off-white pages? Off-white. Did that have good eye appeal? Was it centered? So then I got to look on eBay and Comic Link and Comic Connect. I see what stuff's going for. And and my comic shop. The problem with my comic shop is they take stuff on consignment where the consigner consigning yeah where, where the consigner sets the price and the prices are ridiculous like they're way off mm. so you so you can't go by their prices on on consignment stuff but if you go on comic link comic connect heritage i i, I go on heritage and there's a way to look at past auctions that can be helpful there's also a, a site called worth point which collects data that's helpful yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense that the, you know, being able to look back and see what has sold and at what price and at what grade is perhaps the most useful gauge for this. I mean, for something like GPA analysis, so that's, or the GPA, that's uh, retailers self-reporting what they've sold? Yeah, but it's not a, a complete listing. Like I said, a lot, of, probably probably three-fourths of, of retailers don't submit their data. So it's it's not a complete look, but it's good enough. And since so many people use it, it becomes valuable because everyone goes by it. But um, we all, there's also certain books where I just feel that are undervalued or overvalued for that matter. So like, let, let's say, for example, like the Inhumans, you know, FF45, um, which I bring up a lot because that one like skyrocketed and then crashed. Now it's creeping back up again. Um, FF45, if I send something softening up, like it's going cold, I'll, I'll price it cheaper, like in advance. Just sell it now before it drops even more. But then vice versa, like for, I'll give you a book that's really skyrocketing. Amazing Spider-Man 14, First Green Goblin. That book, I, I can tell when a book is getting hotter. I get a lot of calls and emails about it and people requesting it. So that's a book. I actually have a couple now. I kind of put it away. Um, I think it's going to keep going up. There's a lot of demand for it, and it's and it's really tough for me to get it. Same on Amazing Spidey 3, Amazing Spidey 6. A lot of demand for those. I can't get them too much. So those, in essence, I'm going to price higher than GPA um, for that reason. But, or, but then right. you, you take a book like New, New, New Mutants 87. It's a relatively common book. I know there's a cable movie, whatever, but coming um that i'm gonna go a little under gp and just sell it because i know I'll, i could always get it again i just I, I just got two last week so i know i'll always get it and i know you've said that certain books that you feel are undervalued at the moment you will stash those you call those squirrel squirrels. yeah don't yeah, be flat a flat squirrel productions <laughs> i that that uh that definitely made an impression on me uh yeah. i mean can you say some of the stuff that you have squirreled or is that not uh, for public consumption you know what? It's mostly books. Um, there's no just one type of book. It's mostly books that are, say, older. Uh, say it's like Bronze Age comics that are really not in favor right now. If for whatever reason, those titles think that there's no Netflix or movie going on with them. But So they're really hard to see. They're really cheap. So there isn't like a specific like first appearance. It's almost any... I'll tell you what it is. It's an older silver, usually Bronze Age book that has a first appearance in it. The character hasn't gotten any exposure, any hype. Um, or it's a Bronze Age title, say like, I don't know, like uh, Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. I think like number five is First Lady Shiva or something, but otherwise it's a dead title. 
stuff like that I'll put away because I figured they're they're cheap now. Why sell them now? I'll just put them away and they'll probably get a mention in a movie or the whole market will go up on them. But there's not one specific like, oh, you know, I'm, put, I'm putting away all the first appearance of Bloodstone because I bet you they're going to make a Bloodstone movie. It isn't like that. It's just stuff that I really feel so cheap now. It just feels too cheap to me. And I'm just going to put it away and wait. And do you find that that often pays off? It's it's paid off very well the past like three or four years because there's been such a, a flood of these new character appearances on all these TV shows and movies. So I've actually found a lot of stuff that like in my squirrel, it actually says the word squirrel on it, by the way, in my squirrel boxes where it was like a dollar book, literally, and now it's like a $20 book. Like It happens, not all the time, but it happens enough that it's it's good. Uh, it's funny, I said we were talking about the, the travel side of this. I think we'll get to that next time. Uh, the, okay. This whole strategy and, and, and this whole piece of it is so interesting to me. Good, cool. When it's a matter of you know a character who's going to get a Netflix show or be in a movie, and there's heat because of that, who are typically the people who are asking for those appearances? Are they... Uh, people who are fans of the movies and they they just want it? Is it uh, a collector who is buying it more for the resale value? Like, what do you typically find? Like, who's going after that stuff? It's mostly the, there. there's three, pretty much, you know, nothing exact. Pretty much there's three buyers. The smallest percentage, the fewest, are those fans, like, say, The Walking Dead show, like people that are not comic people and they're, or fans of the Black Panther. You know, there's... We've been doing great with, with Black Panther comics for, for years now. And it's usually not hardcore comic people. It's people that are into anything African-American. There's, In fact, I have a good friend of mine, not a good friend, he's a buddy of mine in the comic world who does these, there's certain trade shows that are only focused on, on, on Afrocentric stuff. And you could bring anything, if it's related to black culture, you can sell it there. So he comes by and he raids my boxes for any Black Panther and anything with Storm, uh, Blade, um, you know, name it. If it's a black character, he, he buys them up. So as an so, there's that small segment of those buyers. The bigger segment is just collectors who probably wanted that book. They wanted that first in humans and have been procrastinating. And now they hear a movie. Now they're in a panic and I want to own it because because they they actually like the Inhumans and they like Fantastic Four. And then probably just as many, if not more, are these guys that are just into first appearances. They're more those. I call them um, more like f- not f- yeah flipper speculator guys that kind of guys who are into like buying the rookie cards of baseball players thinking they're going to go up. Th- those are usually the guys that don't really love comics. They're into it for a few years because it's interesting, but then they they don't have a real love for comic books, and it's fine. Whatever they want to do, I don't care. But they just and I shouldn't I shouldn't say I'm not saying it's like a bad thing, but they don't like read. Here's what I'm saying is they're not like they haven't been reading comics for 20 years and have this real love for it. They just think it's cool to collect these things and it's a piece of American culture and it looks cool. Going back to the the grading piece of this and price guides, um, I don't think we mentioned Overstreet. Is that a resource that you utilize? And I know you are yeah. a, an advisor for them. Yes, uh, Overstreet is very handy as a reference. It has tons of good information. Pricing on it just by its nature is stale because now pricing is so dynamic and pricing everyone's on the internet and changes daily basically but i do use overstreet quite a bit because on most titles i'm able to have a good feel for well if overstreet is 12 and fine and it's a mid-grade daredevil i'm going to go eight dollars you know and and we're not talking about the key issues i'm just run-of-the-mill silver and bronze I do use Overstreet, actually, and I always, I discount it off, but on, like, Batmans, I go full Overstreet. On most Amazing Spideys, I get, well, not most, but, yeah, I'd say most Amazing Spideys, almost full Overstreet, but on titles like Thor, Daredevil, Iron Man, I just have a formula in my head. All right, well, it's 12 and fine. I'm going to price at seven or eight bucks. If it's 24 and VF, I'm going to go $18. So I do use Overstreet. And most books, though, in all honesty, I I just price by myself, even without Overstreet. I just like bang it out. I know this is a six dollar book. That's a ten dollar book, and I'm usually right. And but occasionally stuff you know creeps up that I miss, so I I consult it. Yeah, it's fascinating that you know you've been doing this so long, and you started in an era pre-internet, so you only had those other resources before. Now, at least you know there's like you said, it's so dynamic, and you can keep up with these things as they're happening. Yeah. Um, so what were those resources that you were using then in the beginning? Was it like an overstreet? Yeah, back then it was very 
much Overstreet. And then there was always a few dealers who were really sharp, and they would kind of figure out which books, which wasn't something I was into doing. I probably should have more. They would figure out certain books that they either just had a gut feeling or really had good evidence were undervalued for whatever reason, or certain books that they would really get, they would start buying them up and kind of almost create the market for. So some dealers would look at Overstreet, but then create their own market, which is which is really smart to do. Like, let's say you think uh, House of Secrets 92 is undervalued. You, you, you buy them all up at Overstreet and you push the market up. I just never really got into doing that. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I think a lot of guys made a lot of money with that. But when I was dealing, it was Overstreet, and then there was something called Comics Values Monthly. I think that started in the late 80s, maybe. Maybe this. it was before Wizard. It was this magazine. It was like a Beckett guide for comics, CVM. That was always kind of crazy. You always looked at their price and would go lower. Like they would take a hot book and be like crazy. And then of course we had Wizard. Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you about that because I, you know, I was a young fan and reader, and I got Wizard, and I remember going through that price guide. What was uh, what was your take on that? Wizard was interesting because when I was doing shows in the eighties, uh, the Seamus family had their comic shop, and they would. They, when you saw the Seamus family come into the comic show, all the dealers were, were doing a little jig because they were spending really great amount of money, and, and they would buy from me and all the other dealers. And they would have certain books like Spider-Man vs. Wolverine with Ned Leeds, that one shot, and they would just buy them up at like from all of us at 10 or 15, and they'd have them in our store at 25. Um, and this is before they launched Wizard. Then they had a prototype of the Wizard Guide, and I, I still have mine. I got it. A little pamphlet, like a beige-colored pamphlet. That was their first um, prototype of a price guide, and it was very interesting. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, and then, obviously, once the, the magazine hit, it was very similar to like that CVM where you would look at them hyping up top 10 hot books, and then there was always these conspiracy theories where... You know, the, the Seamus family would buy up all the Archer and Armstrong zeros in June, knowing that they're going to pump it up in August in, the, in their magazine, which is, I don't know if they did that. I can't, I never saw it with my own eyes. Could they have done it? Yeah, I guess. Um, so Wizard was interesting because it, it threw a lot of fuel in the fire and it brought in all these speculators, a lot of speculators. And like I said, the guys that don't really love comics, guys that just want to, you know, treat, treat it as a commodity. That was very, very interesting. And they, they had a great product, though. That was a great magazine. I, I, I thought it was like really beautifully done. It was pretty funny, some of the columns. <clears throat> some of the columns, I thought, were just funny and, like, well-written. And, uh, but it did, you know, throw a lot of fuel in the fire with pricing. And I would never price right at Wizard unless it was something super that I knew was really good. It was always like, well, the Wizard says this, I'm going to go cheaper. I was a big fan of Wizard, and I, I remember the first issue that I came across, I think it had Hulk on the cover, and it was at a Barnes & Noble, and, you know, I mean, I guess the internet was around then, but not the way that it is now, and so, you know, you didn't have as many opportunities to, to read about comics, and sure. I remember just being so struck by it, I'm like, this is awesome, it's an entire magazine devoted to comics, and interviews, and reviews, and I mean, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, no, I was a big fan. You know, towards the end, you know, the magazine changed a lot, and I think it lost its way before the end. But there was a time where, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of it. I was right, you know, right there with you. I, I enjoyed reading a lot. And I think um, the Overstreet, when I was a kid, and not a kid, but in the 80s, when, when the new Overstreet would, would come out, there was almost that same excitement because I would love to read all the market reports. Like all, all these dealers would write what's going on in their, you know, in, in their uh, corner of the world. And then I, I would look at the ads and then I would just study the prices. I, I, I was obsessed with it. And then, you know, we were talking about grading. Uh, something like CGC, that was something that I wanted to get your take on. I mean, how, generally speaking, I mean, how, uh, how many books are you getting graded from them? Well, what I do, I don't get as many books graded as other dealers for for a couple reasons. One is um, I find that a lot of comics, I'll get the same, at, at the end of the day, I'll realize the same value as I would if I spent the money and waited three months to get it back from CDC. And how much does it cost for grading? It's a sliding scale. If you have just a modern, regular comic off the shelf that's worth like 50 bucks, um, they charge $20, but then they have a handling fee, 
And, and you also factor in, the, this is stuff I always factor in, unless you drop it off at a show and pick it up, you're going to pay shipping. You have to ship mm-hmm. it to Florida and pay return shipping from Florida. That adds, that adds up, right? Uh, and then if you have more expensive con, let, let's say an example, let's say I have a hero for hire one, it's worth $1,000. Then it goes in their standard um, scale, uh, standard tier, and that's $60, and then plus your, so then you're going to be into it for 80 bucks. And then if you have a big book, like I just got an AF15, Amazing Fantasy 15 graded, and they charge, which I, I kind of have a problem with this, they charge a percentage of the value, which to me is a, is a conflict of interest. It's they're, they're doing the same work. Yeah. Now, it's a conflict. Now, they should... I have no problem charging more for an expensive comic because they have insurance costs. They have to check it more carefully. There's... I, I don't mind a higher price, but when they go into charging a percentage of the value, there's a total conflict there. Yeah, that seems like a little bit of funny business with that. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and, I, and I've never liked it. So, in other words, so... And like the Amazing Fantasy 15, I, co- I think it cost me about 340 bucks or so to get it graded. A book like that, are you mailing that or you're dropping that off and picking it up at a show? Well, I have shipped them. That 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 I um, that I shipped. I shipped that in the amazing one, and and you ship it by registered mail and insured and everything. But um, I like to drop them off at a comic show. I prefer to do that. It just takes away that anxiety, right, of having to ship them. So I guess then you're always doing that cost-benefit analysis of, you know, is it worth it to spend the money to get it graded? Am I going to make that much more yeah, well, exactly. being able to sell a graded copy? Like, very often my analysis is um, if it's very valuable and I, I just don't want a lot of people uh, handling the book, you know, having to show it to a buyer and it's not protected, I'll get it graded just to kind of protect it. And also, if it's higher value, I get it graded, so it's checked for restoration. I'm I'm very good at picking up stuff, but you know something could slip by me. Doesn't happen much, so I also want to check for restoration. Um, but a lot of times, let's say I have a book that's worth say like like five hundred to a thousand dollars, like an amazing one twenty nine. I'll usually just keep it raw, and I do the analysis. I figure out what I could get for it. I'm usually right on target, and and I figure you know I'm just going to sell it raw. And very often, what happens. Someone would rather buy my amazing 129 that I say is a 6.0, okay? They'd rather buy it from me and kind of maybe think and hope, oh, maybe it's a 7.0. And they, like in, in their mind, I know that's, that's in their mind. Well, maybe Ben undergraded it. It's possible. But once I know it, once they know it's a 6.0, there's no more mystery. Like, all right, 6.0 is worth this. It's actually less appealing. It's more appealing when it's not graded on a lot of those books. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because I guess that's, and again, I don't, buy or sell any of these back issues like i really don't have uh, other than working at alternate realities and seeing stuff come through i mean i don't really have much direct experience with this myself and even among the guys at the store there were other people who work there and shop there and were part of our community who were really into you know the older books and that was never me like i i I enjoy it from afar i guess like it's Mm -hmm. just never something i've i've been into but i was thinking about that because i would imagine it it does kind of take a little bit of the fun out of it it does. I, I, to me, you know, getting stuff certified, it, it, it definitely has its place in the hobby. It's very useful, and, and I do get stuff certified. I don't do a lot of it, though. I do maybe a couple, maybe a couple hundred a year, maybe 200, 200 or 300 books a year, maybe. Because very often, I just find that um, to spend that extra money and also have the book tied up for a while, sometimes it takes three months to get it back, it's just better just to sell it here in the store. And and uh, most of my buyers would pre- prefer raw. You know, they say raw than CDC. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if you find, I mean, are people coming in necessarily looking for that or if they're just as happy to, you know, buy buy it raw? We find that our buyers, at least, are are much more interested in raw books. And some, some of them I know want to, like, get it cleaned and pressed, which I do some of that. I don't do it myself. I get some of that done. Clean. You know, you get a book, but... Um, we just find there, even at shows too, we do much better with the raw books than CDC books. I also have to think for you specifically, you've been doing this so long, you know, we've spoken about the reputation that you've built up. I feel like there, there probably is that feeling, especially among your regular customers. People have a feeling that they know what they're getting when you price and grade something. Yeah, I think, um, I would say... 99% of my buyers now um, absolutely trust what, what they're getting from me. That if Ben has a price at 100 that's that's fair or even low. 
like they I just built built up that reputation and and occasionally we we have certain books most of my stuff I've talked about already I, I turn them over occasionally stuff will sit around for like a couple of months like I just had it happen I had a couple early FFs and I was at 125 bucks on them there's like a Doctor Doom with Ant Man which is really cool like that but it, it hasn't sold so I know everyone's seen it I'm probably a little off on that like I got I, I saw that Ant Man I got excited I made it a little like 10 bucks too much but in general we sell tons and tons of books. Because we built up this trust that I'm, I don't overgrade my stuff. And then the last thing I want to ask you for this episode, you know, you mentioned uh, cleaning and pressing, and I know there are a number of those techniques that can, you know, restore books. Just generally speaking, I mean, what is your feeling on that? Do you feel there's a place for it? Is it something that you're not as into? Well, my feeling is um, it's something that that's here to stay. Everyone's doing it now. It just become part of the hobby. Um, it's not, uh, as far as cleaning and pressing, um, it's not considered a, a restored book. Right. Cause there is such a range to this, right? So there's somewhat on the, the lower end of the spectrum, cleaning and pressing, which is not even technically considered restoration. It's not at all. It's just like, because basically they, when I say they, uh, CDC, you know, the certification companies have, have made a decision. It's not, you're not altering the, the book. It's when you trim something or color in something or take a chemical and clean something. Okay. The book's being altered. As far as they're concerned, when you clean something with like, you know, there's all different techniques. Uh, there's like these erasers, like rubber erasers. Um, you're just getting rid of dirt. It gives it a nice shine. And when you press it, you're just, you could get the same effect from just a book being squished in a box really tight. So, so they've decided it's not restoration. So it's not restoration. I don't mind it either way. I think it's getting a little crazy now where, um, I don't know, in, in general, this is just me being a little old-fashioned. I, I just really love comics, and it's just getting a little too granular, you know, with people buying these books with, like, well, it's a 9.4, and maybe we could press out that little dent, make it a 9.6. It starts to take away some of the fun. Right. But I can change it. That That's the nature of the business, so it is what it is. Cool. Well, Ben, I guess I'll let you go because I know you're uh, you're off to do more uh, uh, collection buying. But I want to thank you so much for uh, continuing to be part of this Beyond My Comic Shop miniseries. It's my pleasure. Uh, so during the time that we've been talking, the store open. It's busy, hopping on a Saturday. So if you hear uh, some people in the background, you have you have customers already. It's funny. The first time that I spoke with you during my comic shop history season three, uh, you set a record for the earliest recording, and today we broke it. We met yeah. even earlier today. Next time we might have to meet at five i don't know <laughs> well one one thing i've always done is uh i get an i like i like getting an, an early an early jump on everyone i really do actually i like getting an early start <clears throat> yeah well once again thank you for being part of this my pleasure and to our listeners once again i will say to be continued and come back in two weeks for part three of buying books with ben until then just keep punching Buying Books with Ben will be back in two weeks, but you don't have to wait two weeks for fresh Flat Squirrel content. Head on over to the Patreon page for the exclusive after show. My guest is none other than former Alternate Realities owner Steve Odo. It's the after show with Sko, only on Patreon. Patreon.